0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Fuse listeners. On this edition of the program, a conversation I recently recorded with Norman Finkelstein, who is perhaps most well-known for his work on Israel-Palestine, but has since turned his attention to the issue of cancel culture and identity politics in his book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It heretical thoughts on cancel culture, identity politics, and academic freedom. Norm is not one to mince words. He speaks bluntly and honestly about his view on a number of topics in this conversation. You may not always agree with him, and I'm not sure I agree with every point he makes in the conversation. However, I do think there is some value in thinking about the ways in which class issues are often sort of swept under the rug when it comes to American political and cultural discourses. And in a way, that's one of Norm's main points. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Norman Finkelstein on his book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. Heretical Thoughts on Cancel Culture, Identity, Politics, and Academic Freedom. Welcome to Parallax Views, The guest I'm very excited to be speaking with. Norman Finkelstein, author of I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. How are you doing?
1: I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Norman, uh, for my listeners, maybe you could give a little bit of background on how I'll Burn That Bridge when I get to it uh, came together, what led you to write it, because you're dealing with a different topic than I think you're known for here. Uh, You're known for dealing with Israel-Palestine, and really here you're dealing with issues related to identity politics, woke culture and cancel culture, and offering a, a left criticism of those things.
1: Uh, yes, it's true. I've written overwhelmingly and lectured overwhelmingly on the Israel-Palestine conflict. However, I am a political person. It's not just a scholarly endeavor, and it's not a um, uh, one—you know—it's not an e-day fix, an obsession with Israel-Palestine. It's Israel-Palestine, and always has been about a bigger, greater cause: the cause of truth and the cause of justice. And in the case of Israel Palestine, the cause of truth was very time consuming because Israel had a very well healed uh, propaganda machine uh, churning out propaganda at an extraordinary rate and an extraordinary um, pro- uh, prolific, prolificness. So it was a full time business trying to keep up with the lies and trying to expose the lies. However, as I said, Uh, I never called myself a anti Zionist, let alone a Zionist. Uh, For me, I had bigger, a bigger ideological and moral, a bigger moral and ideological uh, vision. And uh, I was uh, concerned, I would say, and curious about this phenomenon called cancel culture, wokeness, identity politics, which suddenly not only played a salient role in the left, but played a salient role in American culture in general, which was quite unusual. Uh, Until the Bernie Sanders candidacy, uh, there was no real left in the United States in the conventional sense, the sense of a left that's identified with a certain economic and uh, social slash socialist vision. Uh, and most of what went on in the left was pretty marginal things like pc political correctness you had to be part of a so to speak in group to even know that phenomenon existed it existed in the margins of academia Uh, but otherwise in mainstream culture if you go back you know you take a uh you take a clinton or a uh carter uh, did any of them ever refer to this thing called PC political correctness? Uh, was it a subject of debate in Congress? or was it the subject of bills to try to ban PC? No, it was a, it existed. It was a noteworthy phenomenon in academia, but outside academia, you know you could see mentions of it on the culture pages of say, the New York Times. But certainly it wasn't a political phenomenon, uh, whereas this quote, this cancel culture identity politics, it's now become a significant political uh, point of contention. And so I undertook to try to make sense, at least in my own mind, originally, was there any substance to this cancel culture? Or was it as it appeared to be just sheer gibberish, sheer nonsense, utterly vacuous, no intellectual content? Uh, And on close inspection, uh, my suspicions were confirmed at that point, there's nothing there, nothing there intellectually, of course, politically, as I said, it's now uh, anchored uh, firmly in mainstream culture. So One thing I wanted to delve
0: into was, I know there was that controversy recently uh, with the figure of Bethany Mandel and your friend, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, sort of saying to Bethany Mandel, well, can you define wokeness? And her guest couldn't do that. Uh, I think that wokeness is a real phenomena uh, and I think there's problems with it. So for instance, when I see a CIA ad, Uh, claiming to be woke, that to me is, you know, just very bizarre. There's obviously this sort of branding that goes on, you know, uh, the U.S. government or corporations trying to brand themselves as woke. At the same time, I sometimes think that uh, sort of right-wing elements use the term woke just to shut down any debate. Uh, I was wondering, what do you consider to be woke? How would you define it?
1: There are many ways of approaching the question. I was uh, watching the other evening an interview with this philosopher Susan Nyman. And she was tracing the intellectual roots of current woke or cancel culture identity politics ideology. Uh, And she traced it back to figures like of course, Foucault, and also Carl Schmitt. Uh, That sort of stuff doesn't really interest me, uh, because I don't think the walk politics has any intellectual grounding, I don't think it has any uh, serious content such that we should be probing the uh, genesis of it. I'm more curious or concerned about uh, this phenomenon, let's just call it, uh, let's just call it for now we'll call it identity politics. Um, I'm more concerned about it as a political phenomenon. And as a political phenomenon, I would say it has three interrelated strands. Number one, it's used to create a new base for the Democratic Party. Democratic Party used to be the base of the work. Its base used to be the working class, the unions. Uh, that's what you thought of when you um, thought of the Democratic Party. My father was a uh a worker he was a factory worker eventually he, he got up to the position of a foreman in the factory and my brother likes to tell the story that my father said in the 1950s like 1956 my brother tells this story my father said vote for the democrats the republicans are for rich people and, and that's what we thought that's what always was and then the the, the, the um there was a, there seems to be a realignment uh, in the Democratic Party. Biden is uh, current president. Biden is something of an exception there, uh, not a full exception, but partially exception. Um, in any event, the a vacuum was created at the base of the Democratic Party because large numbers of white workers defected uh, into the Republican Party or the far right. Um, so they needed a new base and they decided to create a new base among minorities. Of course, minorities always figured the Democratic Party, but not in such a big way as is currently the case. And Biden in that respect is emblematic of the identity politics side of the, of the party. Uh, he appoints a, he chooses a woman, vice, a black woman, vice presidential candidate, selects a black woman, uh, Supreme court justice appoints a black woman, as I understand, lesbian press secretary, Uh, he's all the checks in order to get that black woman minority vote. So that's one purpose of identity politics. The second purpose, and as I said, all of these strands are, they're not knotted together, but they are closely connected. Uh, The second is to stop any class based a movement at the base of the Democratic Party. In other words, to stop in the most recent intercarnation Bernie campaign. And it was very clear in 2016 and 2020 that all the uh, icons of identity politics were uh, uh, converged and formed a kind of juggernaut to stop Bernie. Uh, people like Angela Davis, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Joy Reid. I I was going to say
0: real quick, uh, you even mentioned one pundit who says uh, that, oh, you know, uh, Bernie is behind with the times, Uh, you know, the
1: corporations are where it's at. That's where the real struggle is going on. Not the real struggle, the real victory. The reason she said, that's where the action is, you know. Uh, that was Kimberly Crenshaw. She's sort of like the goddess of, of uh, identity. Intersectionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the second purpose. And the third purpose, in my opinion, is to give a kind of progressive or even radical, a progressive or radical sheen to a politics that requires no sacrifice at all by the rich. Uh, the rich can pretend to be at the cutting edge of radicalism and not have to make any material sacrifices at all. You know, Martha's Vineyard is right now the vanguard of the revolution uh, by the standard, uh, by the metric of identity politics. So they get to be look really radical and really down with the hood. And uh, there's no sacrifice. There's no material cost to them. It's a classic case of the adage, having your cake and eating it. Um, so, uh, and by the way, that's so at odds with the whole radical tradition where we revere figures who gave everything up to and including their lives for an idea or an ideal or Rosa Luxemburg dying at her post, Karl Liebknecht dying at his post, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, you know, that's the sort of, uh, Those are the, those were the, uh, or even a Gandhi. uh, Those are the sorts of people we revere. Nowadays, it's considered a revolutionary act. And here I'm being very literal. I'm not being in any way hyperbolic. It's a revolutionary act. I noticed on the web in 2020, Judith Butler announced that she had changed her pronouns to they, them. And this is supposed to be the equivalent of Rosa Luxembourg, getting her skull cracked uh, and being thrown into a river, uh, her body washed up three months later because of her commitment in to the cause of uh, the socialist revolution in Germany. Uh, this is so it's so wholly unserious. It's so completely ridiculous. And the degree to which people on the left are uh, intimidated by the prospect of being cancelled if they speak out against this nonsense. It's really kind of shameless. Now, yes, it's true that uh, people on the right have weaponized people on the left, so called left, I don't consider this left at all. But people on the self described left have weaponized identity politics and people on the right have weaponized identity politics. I think that's true. However, you know, there's an expression, a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, The other day, a young friend and brilliant colleague of mine, uh, Jamie Sternweiner, he sent me a video, uh, no, he sent me a Twitter posting of Piers Morgan interviewing Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins, whether you like him a lot or not, I don't particularly like his... uh, frenzied, anti his frenzied atheism, but let's leave that aside. Uh, Dawkins just said, speaking as a scientist, and I have to defer to his judgments as a scientist, he said, there are just two sexes. There are two sexes, period, full stop. Uh, and when the question of gender came up, he just had this kind of dismissive look. He, I don't care about gender. I'm a scientist. I'm talking about sexes. There are two sexes. And of course, he's right. I've talked to many, many biologists, very woke biologists, incidentally. I've talked to many scientists on that question. They don't budge an inch. There are two sexes, full stop. So when people on the left, like Judith Butler says in the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, She said the court got, and I'm calling it up, got the sex wrong, as in women don't get pregnant. You know, the subject of abortion is not just about women. No, Judith, I'm sorry. The Supreme Court got the sex right. Abortion is about women. This is just complete nonsense. So my point is... If the right gets to weaponize the uh, or anti-identity politics, it's because it's handed to them on a silver platter, this complete nonsense, and then they get to weaponize it. So you're creating, you're creating the possibility of it being weaponized by saying things which are positively ridiculous. You can say Trump supporters are climate change deniers, Trump supporters are, you know, this and that. Well, guess what? Claiming there are uh, that there are more than two sexes, or you can change your sex. Guess what? That's as lunatic as climate change denial. In my book, you want to claim they're irrational? You want to claim they're anti science? Fine. And I'll go with you on that. But then what you're saying is also completely insane. Do you I
0: mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in the whole trans debate, but do do you draw a distinction between uh, gender and sex? Do you think there's room to uh, separate the two?
1: Of course, there's room to separate the two. I wish they were separated. The problem is it's the so-called identity or the identity politics left that conflates them. It's the identity politics left that talks so loosely about sex and gender as if they're interchangeable. Do you think the Supreme Court got the, the sex wrong when it was referring to women having abortions? Do you think people get pregnant? Do you think people menstruate. Do you believe that? How many of your male friends invited you to their baby showers? You know, these things are insulting to the intelligence and I won't participate in them. I'm not a person of science, but at least I have enough deference to science to ask scientists, to ask biologists. And I'm telling you a lot of my friends are very woke. You know, we quarrel on other issues, but they're not going to quarrel on this. People do not menstruate, Ms. AOC. People don't get pregnant, Amy Goodman. No, women menstruate, women get pregnant.
0: Do you think there's? Uh, what do you think the consequences are of not separating gender and sex? Then we can move on but to some you other know, issues.
1: I mean, look. I am uh, in uh, Chairman Mao, and I used to be a Maoist. Chairman Mao famously said in his essay on um, peasant rebellions in Hunan province, or it was called a report on peasant rebellions in Hunan province, province he famously said, no investigation, no right to speak. Now, roughly, that'll be translated in today's uh, language as If you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, then shut the fuck up. Okay. I don't know about science, biology. I'm not going to pretend to. I left that behind in high school. I'm not proud of it, but it's a factual matter. And I have to be, uh, I have to be humble about my uh, competencies and my lack of competencies. So I'm not going to speak on the subject. I said, I asked biologists, I've asked scientists. And I was very struck that when Richard Dawkins uh, the remarks I heard quoted, it's exactly what I've been saying for the last couple of years. I mean, what are you talking about? So I don't want to get into involved uh, matters of sex. uh, Those are scientific biological questions. And people who have no background in science, no background in biology, they should abide by Chairman Mao's dictum. No investigation, no right to speak. So I'm the last person now to start pontificating on the subject. I'm simply saying, if you don't like the fact that it's being weaponized by the right, then you should consult competent scientists and not your woke handbook. You should consult competent scientists before you make statements of the sort that are currently being made. So let me reiterate, because people will be on my case. I pass no independent judgment on these questions. I said, nobody can doubt, nobody can deny, nobody can dispute Richard Hawkins' competence as a scientist. And I was struck by his, the the, the degree of just sheer as a scientist, sheer as a scientist, common sense. Of course, there are only two sexes. And he also had an interesting remark. Again, we're talking about just a few, uh, it's just a a little posting. But smart people can say a lot of interesting things in a few moments. He said, it's very different than your, um, your uh, genetic past. For example, People, as you know, they now do this DNA testing. They discover they're 6% this, they're 10% that, they're 20% that, they're 30% that. He says, that's very variable, you know? He says, but that's not the case with sex. That to me was an interesting remark, you know, um, juxtaposing the issue of racial identity versus the issue of sexual identity. He said, quote, sexual identity is really binary but racial identity is not. And that brought to my mind, you know, my mind left, made a leap. Uh, but in my mind, what it brought to mind was, oh, I was very curious to read how W.E.B. Du Bois, the great African American historian, and broadly speaking scholar, um, how he dealt with the question of a racial difference. And at one point, he says that races are so intermixed that it's hard to separate out and say a black race, or a, a Caucasian race, and talk about their intellectual or mental competences where it's very hard to delineate where one ends and where another begins. So that you know, I, I had never really thought about that question in terms of all the discussion about. Black and white IQs and Asian IQs and Jewish IQs, but it did cause me to wonder about the question when they refer to the average Black IQ, it did cause me to wonder how do they determine who's Black? Do they use the one drop rule that if you have one drop, you're Black? How do they determine that basic delineation that here are Black IQs, here are um uh, white IQs here are Asian IQ, or Caucasian IQs and here are Asian IQs and then I thought to myself as you probably know uh, uh, Angela Davis her, she, her ancestors traced back to the Mayflower so should we count her as a white IQ she is a very smart woman should we count her as a white IQ or should we count her as a black IQ and then when Dawkins made that remark that it's just when it comes to your quote-unquote racial background or ethnic ethnic background, background, it's it really is a mixed bag. Um, I remember Stokely Carmichael, he, uh, the black radical. You can consider that sort of stuff radical. I don't. Uh, but the black radical in the '60s, he famously said. or uh, He said at one point, he said. Well, if black IQs are lower than white uh, uh, white IQs, it might be because there was so much uh, rape uh, in the South that maybe it's the white cracker blood that lowered our IQs. (laughs) There's some truth to that. I'm not a scientist. I don't know these sorts of things. But the the basic point he made was... uh, Sex is different than your racial, ethnic uh, background. Sex, is binary. Male, female, period, full stop, you know? Uh, and speaking very much as a lay person, but one who refers to uh, the competencies of science, I have no reason to dispute it. Plus, none of my friends asked me to get them, t- none of my male friends. Asked me to get them tampons for Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> or Hanukkah.
0: <laughs> well, I I want to move away from the the transgender topic, or which, I, I feel like which, because because I, I'm totally a C in that topic. <laughs> well, I I mean I appreciate what you said earlier that. You know there is you could differentiate between gender and sex right and that's traditionally what i think people have done to be honest is is to say that gender is one thing sex is another
1: when i was in college i read margaret mead margaret mead you know if you look at her her books a lot of it about was going to these various exotic south sea islands and discovering men just carry on like women women carry on like men that they have a different social Um, presentation, if you want to call that, a different social presentation than one might expect, given what their sexes are. So we all knew long before these fads came along, uh, we all knew that people express their sexual identity, which is fixed. They express their sexual identity in all sorts of different ways, depending upon um, the culture in which they were raised and also their personal proclivities. Uh, When I was growing up, we all watched Robin Hood. Robin Hood wore tights with a little tutu. You know, that was Robin Hood, that was Errol Flynn. So we knew about those things. That's not a new insight. Um, I do think it's very problematic, however, when on forms, on forms. Now, when we used to fill out forms, it's still basic. It's still the same. You had your height. You have your weight, you have your eye color, you have your hair color, you have your date of birth. What did those refers to? You could you could call them. Those are relatively stable identifiers. Your eye color doesn't change, your hair color doesn't change until you get to be my age. In my case, it was 30 already. My mother used to say, Norman, you're not gray, you're white. Uh, <laughs> um, so those, but they're relatively stable identifiers. Okay. Now, one of those relatively stable identifiers was your sex. So we always had sex: a box M and a box F. Okay. Now they have. They, nobody uses sex anymore. You're not allowed to use the word sex anymore. You have to use gender. Well, gender is not a relatively stable identifier. In the UK, they identify a hundred different genders. So we're supposed to have a box now gender in a hundred different choices. And of course, at the end, we're going to have plus, you know? So uh, I say, let's just go back to what it was Call it sex, male, female, relative identifier, relatively stable identifier. When a cop asks you, was the perpetrator Male or female, standard question. Are you supposed to say, Excuse me, sir, that's really unwoke? There are a hundred different possibilities. Or if you're the victim, do you just answer male or female because you want to track down who did it? So, who committed the crime?
0: Right, right. So, um, I mean, I know there's going to be listeners say, Well, you know, debating this is going to cause problems because, oh, uh, I, I don't know if you saw that that um, speech at CPAC where the one CPAC speaker at the conservative conference said, uh, you know, we need to eliminate uh, or eradicate transgenderism. I don't think you're arguing for that either, though. I think you're just saying I, that sex and tran- transgenderism are two I different don't things.
1: Know. Look, I am I, I have to keep reiterating this. I am not a biologist. I took high school biology in my sophomore year. Incidentally, I did not perform brilliantly because of that section on genetics. And I'll be honest about it. The genetics section was very hard, tough for me. Um, So I don't feel there's any point in debating it because I don't have the competence. However, I will insist that I did from curiosity. I asked my college roommate, excuse me. Yes, my college roommate, Danny Trankina. He was a biomathematician until recently retired at NYU. He knew his biology, he knew his mathematics. And he won't be offended if I say he's much more woke than I am, okay? In a positive sense, he he does everything possible to be a generous human being. I won't go so far in my generosity that I feel like I'm based, uh, I am I am debasing reality but he will do his best i said to him danny are there two sexes he said, of course there are two sexes i asked my best friend rudolph baldeo he's a pediatrician do you know what his job his first job as a pediatrician when the child is born what's his first job you know what it is he has to assign a sex that's your first requirement as a pediatrician when the child is born you have to assign a sex. So I asked him, Rudolph, <laughs> are there a lot of sexes? Is there any dispute? He says, there's this tiny, tiny infinitesimal category. Uh, we used to denote it as um, the, the, category, the form they use was ambiguous. It was this tiny, and now they call it intersex. It's this tiny, tiny uh, category. But he said, yeah, of course there are two sexes. He doesn't pause when a child is born. Well, let me get out my booklet and see in which of the 200 categories this child fits. No, it's not a complicated exercise. He knows what a male is. He knows what a female is. um, Full stop. So based on what my people tell me, and then listening to Dawkins, who just, he just He doesn't even have he can't even comprehend a debate like this when they said but what about gender and he just kind of contentiously said i don't want to talk about gender this has nothing to do with science i don't want to talk about gender talking about sex so one
0: thing i wanted to move on to was uh you know the most i I would say interesting aspect of your book for me was talking about figures like robin d'angelo And I think it really brings to the fore the problems uh, with a certain form of identity politics, uh, because we get to this point where, you know, D'Angelo is making a lot of money. Uh, And I would say she's helping corporations in a way cover their own asses.
1: (laughs) And and she's she's making a lot of money and she's an airhead. (laughs) Well, she is an airhead. She's incapable of writing a, a single English sentence. She's completely illiterate. She's a moron. She just cites other woke people to to buttress her quote unquote theses. Um, yeah, she's yeah, what well, she's well, she's. Uh, a Whoopi Goldberg on steroids. So what, what I was going to say
0: about D'Angelo is, you know, a company like Amazon can hire her uh, to give an H.R. You know, uh, speech. And, you know, that company can say, see, we're not racist, uh, you know, and it becomes an ass covering mechanism for people like Jeff Bezos in case they get sued for for uh, a racist incident. Uh, do you think that's a large part of what uh, this sort of liberal identity politics is used for a sort of yeah. cover your ass type deal?
1: Yeah, it's sort of like uh, slave masters hiring people to teach slaves etiquette so they can show how they're trying to. Bring enlightenment to slaves. Uh, if you want to do, if you want to contribute something to humanity, instead of bringing in Robin DiAngelo, how about just doubling the workers' wages? Ask the black workers, workers, a simple question: Which would you prefer, sessions with Robin, or doubling your wages? We know what they'll say. That's not complicated. Why do you even need Robin D'Angelo? I I only I don't even know why you need this freak. Why if you have problems and you just should have meetings and people should speak their mind. Black people are afraid of white people. They're afraid to speak their mind. No, I don't think so. Black people are quite able to articulate their grievances, articulate their uh, feelings. They don't need a diversity trainer, this freak uh, to come in and uh, and uh you know robin is down with the hood she's got a special pipeline to black people as she writes in the book they trust me you know i don't think they trust her i'm sure they think what this fucking white bitch doing here <laughs>
0: trust me you know well, it is true that she's sort of says, oh, all these other white people are the bad guys, yeah. but I, I'm sort of the good guy, you know? Yeah. I may have my own
1: biases, but I'm yeah. one of the good people. She, she'd she be having a special pipeline to black people, you know? Robin, she'd be down with the hood because when she'd be a teenager, she'd be hanging out with the Harlem Globe Trotters tra, uh, in the locker room. She, she'd be knowing black people. It's like just <laughs> it, so... You can't mock it enough. People said, why are you using that? It's not Ebonics. Nobody talks like that the way I have these characters speak in that chapter. It's because I'm mocking white people, these stupid white liberals who want to carry on about how down with the hood they are. I remember the person is still alive, so I have to be careful what I say. But I knew this white radical. And every time at the um, rallies, you know, for some police brutality or something, she'd be talking about my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, you know. And I used to laugh. There was this real black militant woman. I used to say, what do you think would happen if you locked up that particular black militant with this white, my brothers and sisters? What do you think if you locked them up in in a cell for one year? Would either of them come out alive? (laughs) <laughs> because it's so preposterous. By the way, I have to, again, I have to be candid. I was like that when I was, you know, 16, 17. I wore my uh, black, black, green and red, uh, black power button. I did, okay? And I'm admitting it. So uh, if you say, yeah, Finklesine, you were any better? No, I wasn't any better. But the book is to talk about don't go down this path. Don't go down this identity politics, this uh, fake radicalism, this phoniness. These people, as you correctly said, one thing you could say about my generation is okay, there was a lot of looniness for sure, a lot of uh, posturing and preening for sure. But I would say we didn't do it for the money. We didn't do it for the money. Now there's a lot of money, you know. IBM X. kendi got ten million dollars from Jack Dorsey, the head of C- the CEO of uh, the former CEO of Twitter. Um, and Robin D'Angelo, she's raking in the cash. You know, her her so-called book—it's not a book. I don't know what it is. It's a Bazooka Bubblegum comic with a spine. Uh, she sold eleven million dollars, and it's required of reading in every corporate uh uh headquarters um so this woman nicole what's her i always I can never Nicole hannah, jones, the nicole hannah Project. jones yeah i just read the other day she raked in a million dollars this past year she went to one school and she got just for two days two or three days two or three days she got a hundred thousand dollars you know a hundred thousand this is big cash because you have to understand these are all life insurance policies. Jeff Bezos, he gave Obama a hundred million dollars. He gave Van Jones a hundred million dollars. Can you conceive these numbers? Well, of course, with Jeff Bezos, a hundred million dollars is like me buying one stick of spearmint bubblegum gum. gum. You know, one stick of gum. But why is he doing it? Because he knows that. The writing is on the wall. There's going to be a major attempt to organize Amazon workers. And now we know which side will Obama be on when there is a major strike at Amazon? Which side will Van Jones be on? It doesn't take, as the expression has it, a rocket scientist to figure that out. So this is all just handing out money, not handing out money. It's a very prudential distribution of money. It's called life insurance policies that they're handing out. So that differentiates from our generation. We weren't in it for the money, okay? Eventually, you know, people did capitalize. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver, he became the head of the uh, Black Panthers. I was gonna say, I thought it was interesting,
0: your chapter on um, Kendi. Uh, Apparently he speaks very well of Eldridge Cleaver, which I find interesting because Eldridge Cleaver became, you know, like a hardcore Reagan
1: Republican. Yes, he became, a, a, he was a Mooney, a hardcore Repo- uh, Reagan Republican, uh, absolutely despicable a figure. Um, Kendi may not even know because Kendi's just so stupid. Uh, maybe he just gets his information off of Wiki. I don't know. But even Wiki has the information. You know, um, Cleaver eventually decide, uh, designed these pants with a, what was called a codpiece in order to enhance male uh, masculinity and it was just like an oversized dick uh, on your pants and that was his great contribution to fashion curiously uh candy left that out uh there's there's um let me see if i can find it in the book i should be able to find it because i don't have that many pages in eldridge cleaver He wasn't a big subject, unlike in Kendi, Uh, let's see, 124. So we're going to go to 124. And he thinks, Kendi thinks that Cleaver is a great poet and a great writer. So he says, he reprints uh, Cleaver's impassioned love letter, quote, to all Black women, from all black men. And here is the impassioned love letter. Across the naked abyss of negated masculinity of 400 years, minus my balls. We face each other today, my queen, I have returned from the dead. To which I comment, if this ditty is why Cleaver came back, then it wasn't worth the trip, or his bulls. balls. <laughs> I could see from your face, you didn't read that highly significant footnote in my book. <laughs> you know you really have to laugh it's just <laughs> so ridiculous
0: well i was gonna say i think he i think you also mentioned that he uh that kendi has like some interesting views on like uh amos and andy i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right but the, i mean it, it, it's just very weird to me because i feel like you know, I think racism is a very real thing. I think, uh, no, you know, we don't sexism have, is very. We don't,
1: have to, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to be emphatic about that point. Any, any rational person knows racism is a problem in our society. You can judge at what levels. Is it a problem legally? Is it a problem economically? Is it a problem psychologically? Uh, these are different levels of racism. Everybody has racist thoughts passing through their head, that's for sure. But does that mean everybody carries on in the racist fashion? No, some people fight their demons and some people acquiesce into their to their demons and some uh, some people turbocharge their demons, you know, but we all have the demons. It's it would be superhuman if we weren't and we are human. This is a society in which we grew up. And so that happens. But we don't have to serve like, yes. Racism is a problem. Yes, it is. I know. Let's move on. Let's try to do what we can to fix,
0: to repair what we can. And that's where it gets interesting, right? Because not not to interrupt you, but it's like, we'll talk about racism is a problem or transphobia is a problem or sexism is a problem. But it seems like the one thing that, that is off limits, especially with a lot of the people you're talking about in the book, is talking about class talking about wages, talking
1: about uh, anything related to class politics and organizing. Well, that's because they want to be in the one percent. So they don't want to upset. They don't want to upset the steep gradations because they want to be in the one. That's all they care about. That's why if you read all of these people, you read Ta-Nehisi Coates, you read Kimberly Crenshaw, you read Uh, Robin DiAngelo, you read Ibram X. Kendi, they don't talk about redistribution of wealth. They talk about ending the disparities. And that just means we want more black people among the 1%. But we're perfectly happy with the way wealth is currently distributed, just so long as there are more one one people at the apex of the uh, uh, wealth distribution in our society. So they don't talk. There's always a, a couple of throwaway fragments. They'll talk about, how, oh, yes, uh, class is a real problem and the story, you know, and then they move on to the real issue. The real issue is uh, we got to have more black people upstairs.
0: Yeah, well, uh, while basically, you know, I, I mean, in a way, I think they're almost saying, well, you know, fuck all the poor black people. You know, as long as there's 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 a few more of us than the 1%, then everything's that's, all great and
1: good. That's yeah. exactly. Just as long as jo- Joy Reid, uh, another uh, airhead, uh, just as long as Joy Reid is walking home, you know, the read, what is it called? The readout. The readout. Uh, okay, I, I'm not saying she's any stupider than any white uh, uh, commentator on MSNBC. There are, there are comparable levels in, of imbecility. Uh, but the pay they get for God knows what? Oh, we don't We know what because the ruling class realized uh, it's it, it's a small price to bring black people into the ruling class is a small price to play, pay if it's going to help stabilize the system. So we made Jim Clyburn the third most powerful person in the House of Representatives. And then we wheeled him out when we needed to stop Bernie in South Carolina. And up until South Carolina, it looked like Bernie was going to win the primary. In the last week, the polls were showing that Bernie was going to win. And then they wheeled out Jim Clyburn, who up until the last week said he wouldn't endorse any candidate. Jim Clyburn, for your listeners, he's black. And then they wheeled him out, and the exit polls showed that Jim Clyburn's endorsement of Biden uh, affected 60% of the voters, the black voters in the primary. And The bottom line being, the white ruling class realized bringing in a few black faces is a very small price to, play, to pay if it helps stabilize the system. And So, of course, they brought in all these these, uh, phenotypical black people uh, into the ruling class. Where it gets really concerning
0: for me is when I see things like, I I, I sent you a few articles um, that I just thought were interesting in light of your examination of identity politics and wokeness and cancel culture. Uh, So one of them was about uh, you know, the military industrial complex is now mainly run by women. Isn't this great? And I'm thinking to myself, this is all just branding. You know, this is all just trying to brand yourself as, oh, look how diverse we are. But the military industrial complex, they produce weapons of death and they profit off war. I don't really care if uh, there's a-, a few more women as CEOs within that complex, but sure. uh, Mm-hmm.
1: So there's always been debate about that. In, in the old left, uh, there was what were called the terms they used were bourgeois democratic rights, namely rights that okay. fell within the parameters or the limits of a capitalist liberal society, capitalist democratic society. And so the, a woman's right, let's say, uh, the right to vote. The right to vote for Blacks and women, those are considered bourgeois democratic rights, which is to say they weren't going to radically upset the capitalist system. They weren't going to radically upset the democratic system. But on the other hand, those are rights which should be fought for and won because it would give more political power to um, the working class if Blacks had the right to vote, if women had the right to vote. and so on. So uh, to the extent that a society more evenly represents all of its constituents, um, it, these are bourgeois democratic rights that we should fight for. What do we feel about bourgeois women and bourgeois blacks? Well, somebody the other day sent me uh, a uh, a remark that Rosa Luxemburg made, and she was very harsh on this phenomena. She called bourgeois women the ones who in that era fought for the rights of women. She called them the parasites of the parasites because the ruling class, the capitalist class of the parasites, and most women in that era didn't have jobs. So they were just wives of the capitalist class. So she called them parasites of the parasites. And she said they were the, the worst of the worst, uh, worse than the capitalists themselves, were their wives. Um, in our society, I do think there is a, something to be said that once women get into power, they have to show that they can be as ruthless as men. And so there's an element of what you might call overcompensation. So it was perfectly obvious that Hillary Clinton's first act on becoming president was to look around for some utterly defenseless third world country to bomb. I don't mean that as a joke. That's just absolutely the case, to prove that she could be as tough as a man. So there is something to be said that it might actually be worse from the point of view of humanity when women get into these positions of power because they have to overcompensate in order to prove they can be as ruthless as men. Uh, so uh, I think those are, you know, I'm willing to say those are complicated questions. Uh, I, for one, I'm glad there are women on the Supreme Court. Even even uh, Amy Com- 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 Barrett. Uh, Amy Comey Barrett. Yeah. no, I can't. Remember. Amy Barrett. Amy remember. Coney Barrett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad there are women on the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, I'm glad there are female police officers, I suppose, even though they can be as for the same overcompensatory compensatory reasons, they can be worse than men. Um, I, I, I would just say these are ambiguous questions. Uh, I don't think they're susceptible to a uh, black and white answer. No, I agree with that.
0: I I guess I was just getting at the fact that, you know, we don't talk about necessarily what are the, you know, horrors caused by the military industrial complex. Instead, we cheerlead, oh, there's more diversity or we'll cheerlead, um, you know, Barack Obama. even though he was known as the deporter in chief when it came to immigration, and we all sort of ignored that, it seems like we sort of use identity as a bludgeon
1: to ignore the real issues it's at times. Because, because you were terrorized into ignoring it, that people like Obama, they became the litmus test. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? If you criticized them, there could only be one possible explanation. You're a racist. That's how the ruling class, they create this cult around Obama, knowing that Obama was a sure bet at any moment of truth. You know, you know, Obama, when he had to deal with the bank banking uh, debacle, uh, he had a choice between his two main economic advisors were Timothy Geithner and uh, Larry Summers. Uh, both Geithner and Summers are totally mainstream figures. Oddly enough, Summers, he wanted to punish just a couple of banks, just a couple. So, you know, you could cover yourself bankers too are held to the law. <laughs> Geithner didn't want to punish any of the banks. You know, he's a banker paying a fine. Forget about going to jail, you know, paying a fine. This is an outrage. And who did Obama go with? He went with Geithner. He went, we, you know. So Obama was the furthest to the right, but can't say that because the ruling class realized he's a sure bet. And therefore, they create this cult around him such that you can't criticize him. Because if you did, it can only be because you're a racist.
0: And that's how, right, and completely ignoring that people like Cornel
1: West had a lot of these same criticisms of Obama, right? Yeah, well, Cornel West was not just ostracized in the white community. Excuse me, he wasn't just ostracized as uh, he was ostracized in the black community. You, I remember a friend of mine who's a very active person. He says you cannot get, you could not rent a hole. I won't name the name of the city because people will know who I'm talking about. You can't rent a hole in this city among blacks if you criticize Obama. And he said, whenever you talk to black people about Cornell West, they shake their head. They shake their head. They are not happy at all with what he was saying about Obama. So um, even the black community could not... Uh, brook any and cannot not just could not cannot till this day, brook any criticism of Obama, except for now the younger people, you know, Obama phenomena, yes, they recognize it as a breakthrough, but it's sort of been there done that. And so the same sort of um, terror that one feels in criticizing Obama, it's not the same with young people. Uh, young Blacks, young African-Americans, because I talk to them, uh, former students and current students, and they can take criticism in stride, Uh, just like Jews. uh, When when Henry Kissinger became Secretary of State and the first Jewish Secretary of State, very exciting, we got a mass murderer you know, in the uppermost reaches of the most powerful country in the world, and he lived his reputation for sure. He lived up to it. Um, but nowadays, of course, Jews can criticize Kissinger without being ostracized. So it takes time, I think. But for now, the, the Obama cult, it's not what it once was. He raked in so much cash and it was so gross. Uh, how he was taking in these book deals and these speaking fees and all the rest. Why anyone would want to listen to a speech by Obama? It's just a complete mystery to me. I'd rather watch paint dry. Uh, What first uh, led you to,
0: like, you included Obama near the end of the first part of the book, Uh, Why did you feel that you should include Obama alongside, you know,
1: figures like D'Angelo, et cetera, et cetera, Kendi? Because, as I said in the first sentence, which I am going to now read, not to promote my book, but because my memory is not perfect, unlike Professor Chomsky, who even at the age of 467 will remember a footnote that he read when he was eight years old. I'm not quite in that uh, category. So, my very first sentence is Barack Obama is the perfected and perfect instrument of identity politics. It's summa summarum. He represents the cynical triumph of force, of form over substance, color over character. He is the cool black dude who is also the reliable, in Professor Cornell West's words, mascot of Wall Street. That's Cornell, not me. For those who want to have me arrested, go to Cornell's residence, not my own. A black man, referring to Obama, a black man who grew up white and therefore knows white people. Inside out and upside down, Obama is a virtuoso at pressing just the right buttons to make white people feel good about themselves by feeling good about him. He was a master at the art of manipulating, in a very cynical way, uh, identity politics in order to not just catapult himself into power, or to be catapulted, because it was mostly people like David Axelrod and David Plouffe, his campaign manager and campaign strategist, who figured out just how to present Obama in such a way that he became the touchstone of a a morality tale. Under normal circumstances, an election is a referendum on the competence and the character of the presidential candidate. But Aksurad and Plouffe, of course, with Obama's cooperation, they managed to turn the election into a litmus test of not his competence, but of our competence and our uh, character. If you vote for Obama, it's because you're a good person. And if you didn't vote for Obama, it's because you're a bad person. It was a morality tale. And he manipulated or he uh, his personhood was manipulated in order to make we the American people feel like our character and our competence was at stake in this election. He was because there's only one possible reason you wouldn't vote for Obama, because you're a racist. It's interesting, too, because,
0: you know, all his speechwriters, I, I think you point this out in the book, too,
1: they were all white. They were all white. <laughs> were all white.
0: And, it's- and it's interesting, because I think you said at one point, maybe this ties into what you were going to say, is, uh, you know, you I think you said in the book that Obama didn't win because of his you know, blackness, but in
1: some ways because of his whiteness. Yeah, he 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 knew just how uh, he knew just what buttons depressed not only to make white people feel good about themselves by feeling good about him, but by being harmless, harmless, but cool, harmless, but cool. The immediate precursor of Obama, I used to think it was Oprah, but it really wasn't Oprah, It was actually Whoopi Goldberg. And I don't mean that as a joke. I'm being, I I tend, people mistake often when they think I'm joking when I'm being dead serious. Remember what happened with Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, There was a, she was on this program, still is on this program called The View. Do you know anything about The View? I'm familiar with it, yes. Okay. So there was a person on the program. Her name was Rosie O'Donnell. a, A white comedian, female comedian. Okay. And Rosie O'Donnell had a radical streak. And she was quite emphatic and informed on the Iraq War. And she was very aggressively attacking the war. She used to get into these verbal conflicts with this white bread character named Elizabeth Hassenfuss. Hassenfuss, something like that. Okay, I may have her name not exactly right. And there was one moment where it got very uh, electrifying between the two of them. And uh, Rosie O'Donnell goes full throttle, right? The next day, she's canceled. Barbara Walters tells her, Your stint at the View is over. Who do they replace her with? They replaced her with Whoopi Goldberg. Why? Whoopi's got the dreads. Whoopi's got the granny glasses. Whoopi dresses like your choice, either a bag lady or a bohemian, but whatever, you know, it's your choice. So she's cool, she's chill, but you know Whoopi is safe. As a matter of fact, Whoopi says, when she's interviewed, after getting the position vacated by Rosie O'Donnell, she says, I'm not gonna do that stuff like Rosie does. You know, that's what she said, I'm not gonna do that sort of stuff. I'm not going to rock the boat. And that's Obama, he, uh, they, he he was the cool dude. If you go to YouTube and you watch him when uh, he's in the audience in the balcony with uh, Michelle, while Aletha Franklin is singing Natural Woman and you see him bobbing his head in syncopated fashion, like you can imagine him in a jazz club in the 1950s. The cool black dude. His gesticulations are understated. That's a cool black dude, But he's cool and he's chill. But he knows exactly what to do and and exactly who to uh, put in his cabinet, put in his staff uh, to be completely safe. Uh,
0: In other words, it's all about the image. It's all about the brand. It's not about, you know, the
1: policies. Yeah. Well, the policies were just totally Mainstream center right Democratic Party policies, uh, except in areas where people aren't really watching very much. Well, in the appointment of judges and Supreme Court Justice, he, he, he was, you know, Garland. Uh, he, oh, what's his name? Garland. His name just slipped by my mind. He's a current a- Derek t- Garland? Yeah. Uh, And you can see Garland is very mainstream, but competent. So that was his Supreme Court nominee. Uh, So he was always very safe. uh, And he knew white people. You have to remember, Obama basically grew up white. His mother was uh, most of the time in Indonesia. His father, who was African, uh, a Kenyan, was a no-show. Uh, So he grew up with his grandparents, and both of his grandparents were white, and so his whole milieu was white, and he grew up in Hawaii, and Hawaii has this strange thing of an inverted racial pyramid. White people are at the bottom of the pyramid in Hawaii, and so so to speak, people of color are at the top. So he grew up with absolutely zero racial consciousness. He... uh, as a matter of fact, the, um, Reverend Wright, his Reverend in Chicago, who Jeremiah. Oh, I,
0: I, I'm I'm very familiar with that story. I feel like Obama threw him under the bus.
1: Yeah, but Wright said I had to teach him what it was meant to be black. because in many ways, Obama just it was terra incognita for him. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, he was the perfect person. It's interesting, even in his inner circle, the only person who was not, there were two people who were not white. I didn't say black, I said not white. There was his, uh, what they called his body man, love. Um, It seems like a nice guy. And there was uh, Valerie Jarrett. But Valerie Jarrett was a classic case of the one drop rule. Uh, When she was born, she tells the story in her book, when she was born, the nurse uh, looked at her mother and they had at that time put down race, looked at Valerie Jarrett's mother and checked white. And Jarrett tells the story when her mother was born, (laughs) the nurse looked at her grandmother and checked white. Now, of course, white, light-skinned white people, even white-skinned black people, or light-skinned black people, or even white-skinned black people, uh, they have every right to live. But it does strike me that even in his inner circle, he didn't want any black people. He had eight speechwriters. Of the eight speechwriters, Obama had to give a lot of uh, presentations at comedy events because the press clubs have comedy events. So he needed a lot of or he would appear on uh, like the Tonight Show, he needed jokes. So he had a lot of comedy writers. He didn't have one, not one of his writers who was black, like black people. Okay, maybe they're not as smart as white people, but they can't write jokes. They can't write jokes. He's so Deeply, you know, the idea of white superiority is so deeply entrenched in him. And Cornel West once said, "He said Barack has a problem with his black brothers. He doesn't think they're smart, well, which is true." Uh, he um, uh, those values were so deeply entrenched in him that he had his own circle, the, the people he felt comfortable with. Even if you read David Garrow's biography, the 1500 page the authoritative, really, the only real biography of Obama, the rest is just either right wing lunacy or liberal wokeness. Um, if you read Garrow's biography, his first his two significant intimate relationships were with white women. And then he was told, he was told point blank. A black man cannot be elected in Chicago if he has a white wife. In Chicago politics, that just doesn't fly. Uh, And that's when he discovered Michelle, but his, uh, his, you know, for better or for worse, you know, maybe it's for the better. He has no, he had no racial consciousness. Maybe, you know, for humanity it would certainly be better. Uh, But it was all, everything was with him. Everything was confected. He didn't have a, a religious bone in his body. Not a religion, really, you know. He grew up in a very secular environment. His friends were—he had a, a, quite a few Pakistani friends, but religion was not religion was not an item in their lives. And then suddenly, Obama discovers religion, and he walks around very conspicuously carrying his Bible, or conspicuously. Placing it in his car so everyone could see, he goes everywhere with his Bible. It's all completely, and then he starts invoking God and God and God. You know, um, it was all fake. Everything. There's not a genuine. His speech. People say he's a great speaker. He's actually an awful speaker. Now that's not prejudice in my opinion. His, his He had four techniques. Number one, always tilt your head up like you're posing for Mount Rushmore. Number two, always pan the audience, slowly pan the audience 180 degrees. Number three, purse your lips to be as you know, uh, like a high school principal talking to juvenile delinquent students. And number four, Always pause every 30 seconds as if your words are so profound that it needs, the listener needs time for them to sink in and to meditate on. But there was nothing organic. There's nothing coming from within him. What makes someone like Martin Luther King a great speaker, it's because you know it's welling up from inside him. What was rolling up from inside uh, Obama? What we know exactly from his authoritative biographer and the last of the page of his 1500 page biography of Obama. What does he conclude? I'll quote him. The vessel is empty. You get it? After tracking down every possible lead on Obama, his book has 300 pages of endnotes. Those 300 pages of endnotes are double column endnotes. After this Herculean task, he reaches the conclusion the vessel is empty. So what's welding up inside Obama when he's giving his speeches? A vacuum. There's nothing there. And you can't be a great speaker unless you're conveying a message that deeply resonates from within you. And then as you as it wells up, what's within you resonates with your audience. And then there's a symbiotic kind of relationship between the audience's reaction and what's within you. There was nothing there. So when people talk about great speaker. Do you think this is also applicable to
0: all these other people you cover, that they're sort of just empty vessels, whether it's D'Angelo or Kendi?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, they're they're just stupid. (laughs) They're just stupid. Uh, But I I wouldn't say, uh, if you take other presidents, I think Carter, there was, depth of character he was a terrible president he was really the first he was the first person to he was the precursor really to clinton dragging it come, the democratic party to the right precursor but, to like the democratic leadership council brand yeah, of uh, yeah. the democratic party it was a product of that but you know credit we're given where credit dues extremely smart man hyper competent brilliant really i don't want to use the word brilliant because it was, People have told me uh, to classify someone as brilliant, you have to show their capacity for originality. That's the criterion of brilliance, but certainly highly competent. Uh, I've read his presidential papers. The guy was a very smart guy. Breathtaking. Same thing with Clinton. Clinton, nobody ever denied uh, Clinton's competence. His knowledge of public policy was bewildering. So we've had, and then we had a George Bush and we had a Ronald Reagan. And I think that um, Obama basically falls in the same trajectory as Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, as uh, Reagan was called, just reading teleprompters, reading scripts. There's just two
0: more things I want to cover, and I know we went a little bit over the hour here, but the the first thing was, uh, in talking about cancel culture, you know, I th- I think there's an argument to be made uh, for real problems with cancel culture. At the same time, I sometimes think it gets thrown around by people like Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan who are simply mad because people are able to push back on them on social media now. You know, we have unprecedented access to pundits, and now we can tell those pundits, hey, David Frum. I think your views on the Iraq war were always bullshit. And I, I think a lot of pundits get very angry about that. And they feel that they're being canceled when really they're just being criticized. I was wondering for, uh, about your thoughts on that. What,
1: what do you think the uses and abuses of the term cancel culture are? Well, I think the main abuse is the lack of from, the, from people like Barry Weiss. The main abuse is a. Uh, a uh, prete- pretense that cancel culture did not exist before the current cancel culture. And in fact, she was a main exponent of cancel culture. On the campus of Columbia University, she wanted to cancel Arab professors. In her position at the New York Times, she just ran one column after another, uh, trying to show how this person is an anti Semite, that person is a Holocaust denier. That was her job at the Times to warm the hearts of the Jewish Kakers, which is Yiddish for basically old farts. The Jewish Kaker billionaires on the Upper East Side, they rolled out Barry Weiss to write another article saying anyone who defames Israel is a uh, anti-Semite or whatever. Um, So she was a practitioner of that culture, but that's not considered cancel culture for her when uh, critics of Israel get canceled. That's just desserts for being a bigot. That's not cancel culture. Uh, and then she's obviously, she's uh, an entrepreneur. You know, there are race hustlers, and she's now a, uh, a hustler of a different sort. She, she's a person of, I've read her b- little book. I would put not just physically, but in all respects, it's a very little book. Um, she's not a great mind. She's not even a moderate mind. She's a zero. All right, zero plus, but not yet one. She doesn't reach the integer of one. Uh, and so she capitalized on it. She left the Times in this very flamboyant way because she knew this was, you know, she's working on the book and she's already probably hired a publicity team of 10 before she's even composed the book. It's gonna be the big attack on liberal culture and the expose of the New York Times. Everything is calculated uh, for likes, shares, views, and of course, deposits in the bank. So it's very hard to take uh, these people seriously any more than Andrew Sullivan who was a New Republic hack for the longest time, under the stewardship of uh, Martin Peretz and Leon Wieseltier. Uh, And then he decided, let's criticize Israel, I think probably I can make more money that way. It's very hard no, for myself at any rate, uh, to take these characters very seriously. There's always been a cancel culture. It's hard to imagine a society without a cancel culture anyone who's outside the mainstream, and off the and past the self described extremes is going to have uh, is going to have in one form, another is going to have to drink the hemlock. That's just the name of the game. And then you have to decide for yourself whether you're willing to pay the price of uh, being outside the spectrum or off the spectrum. So, uh, there's always been a cancel culture. What's different now is the cancel culture, you know, the left never had, okay, the left had a cancel culture of sorts, but the communist party would say some person is a Trotskyist and therefore deserving of being ostracized. Even my childhood hero, uh, Paul Robeson, when the Trotskyists were tried before, before McCarthy, there was what was called the Dies Committee. D-I-E-S, the Dice Committee in the Congress, and the Trotskyists were hauled before the uh, Dice Committee, and Paul Robeson refused—my childhood hero, I don't know how many of your listeners, your viewers will know him—and Paul Robeson refused to defend them. He said they were Trotskyists, therefore they were agents of Hitler, and therefore I won't support them. So the left has always had its so to speak, cancel culture, the difference is they had no power. Of course, they had power in the Soviet Union, but they had no power here. And what's changed now is because the um, a Democratic Party, which is an institution, a powerful institution, and many offshoots of that institution, now they have they're exercising real power. Uh, they have power in universities, they have powers in publishing, they have powers in journalism, uh, they're exercising real power. So the left the so-called left—it's not a left, in my opinion—but the so-called left now has the cancel culture power, and uh, that means um, there are those who suffer at its uh, suffer on its account. Uh, so that's what's new—that now it's being weaponized by an ins- a powerful institution, and so uh, you know. You take the blacklist in Hollywood. There we go. No Hollywood uh, studio owners. The Hollywood studio owners were very reactionary. I mean, they're horrible. Uh, the Hollywood studio owners—they uh, didn't cancel right-wing. They didn't cancel right-wing people. They canceled left-wing people. So they had power. But now MSNBC has power. We—you know, New York Times has power, and so it's able to cancel. Uh, and also to organize, to mobilize its uh, its significant resources to create things like the 1619 project, or to um, uh, to uh, it even supported the uh, George Floyd demonstrations. It even attacked it was kind of amazing the mayor and governor for not being. Uh, supportive enough of the demonstrations, that's all completely new. And one shouldn't, uh, one shouldn't be surprised, but it had two sides to it. The very same New York Times, which was ultra woke, ultra woke, during the George Floyd demonstrations, which was was the very same New York Times, which was relentlessly trying to destroy the Bernie Sanders candidacy. And that gave you the reality of what identity politics is. It's ultra woke, but ultra also ultra a class based left, the two were going on at the same time. And that to me, sometimes, these moments of truth, reveal the true colors. And you saw it uh, during the in particular, the second Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020. Is there, since you said we've always had cancel culture,
0: maybe this is a provocative question, but I think every society has taboos. Is there any, you know, is there a need uh, for some level of cancel culture. Like is there is there a a time and a place for say boycotting a certain person or a product? Is there a, a point where you know something should be canceled?
1: Uh that would take us too far afield because it's many different levels. There's questions of speech, there are questions of morality, there are questions of social norms, it's a question of evolving the evolution of all of those things, morality, norms, and so forth. And there are questions of where you draw the line between what might be called eccentricity, with which good liberals like John Stuart Mills were strongly in favor of. And, uh, his line, which I like to quote, that so few now dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time. So uh, Mill was a, a liberal, was a big exponent of eccentricity but then there's a question of where does eccentricity end and pathology begin and that's not an easy question to answer and as you know that that evolves over time when i was growing up homosexuality was at the pathology and the american psychological association called it a mental illness now it's no longer even eccentricity it's mainstream so in a very short period of time, 50 years, which from the point of view of time is very short, it moved from mental illness pathology, then it moved to eccentricity, and now it's mainstream. And it's certainly within the realm of possibility, that Pete Budzic would be elected president. Uh, so it's well, you know, it's now. So you see, it's very hard to draw the line. I often, with my students, I debate the question of. Woody Allen, does marrying your adopted daughter, is is that eccentricity or is that pathology? Uh, I think those are tough questions. So when you say, are there certain taboos that should be preserved, uh, certain things that should be boycotted? Well, first of all, you have to make the distinction between speech and conduct. And then once you've made that distinction, you're still stuck, in my opinion, with a very difficult question of which forms of conduct should be uh, taboo you know, in our society in its current uh, in its current incarnation. Uh, usually, people think that uh, pedophilia forms falls on the pathology side of the spectrum um, and incest falls on the pathology side of the spectrum. Although there seems to be a broad consensus still on that. I have no idea what's going to be in 10 years from now. So I can't say.
0: In closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having? And what do you hope they get out of the book? Because I, I have to be honest, I think some people um, have been uncharitable towards you. Uh, when I told you, um, someone in my social media circles I was having you on, they, they said to me, oh, he, he doesn't like the trans people, or oh, he doesn't like women. And I didn't get that impression from the book. I mean, at one point you say we should have maximum compassion uh, for people that are transgender. I don't think you have some hatred for women either. Uh, maybe those people that are saying that are being uncharitable, but w- what would you say uh, to people that are listening with an open mind?
1: I don't like to promote my books, but I would say read the book. And, you know, you decide for yourself whether these are reasonable concerns, reasonable arguments. Um, I suppose your friend might have said, I don't like women because of the opinions. Goodman thing, I guess. It's a very funny thing. I don't want to get into that, but it's a very funny thing that in that whole exchange, which I described in the book it never even occurred to me, now maybe it's a blindness on my part, I'll admit it, it never even occurred to me that the issue of her sex ever came up. I was talking about age. Now maybe I'm overly, and people have said, this Fingerson guy is talking a lot about how old he is. Maybe I'm overly conscious about my age. But if it were Doogie Hauser, it happened to have been, a, no, I'm very serious. As I say sometimes, people think I'm joking with I'm, not. It happened to have been a staff member who looked very young. Now, it never occurred to me the issue was her age. If it were Doogie Hauser, I would have said exactly the same thing. I would have said, you look so young, you could be one of Michael Jackson's playmates. I was talking about age. So how anybody can infer from that misogyny, it never, literally, it never occurred to me. It was a very young looking woman so i thought i was being suave and debonair by saying oh you look so young <laughs> it's a funny thing a- amy said she felt sexualized sexualized it never occurred to me literally it literally never occurred to me i was t- I'm, I'm not going to plead with you you can't read my mind maybe i'm bsing you but i'm just telling you <laughs> for better or for worse. It never occurred to me. And then Amy said to me when he had a phone conversation, you should listen to what other people feel. Well, guess what, Amy, you should also listen to what I feel. It never occurred to me. Full stop. Let's take a polygraph. It never occurred to me. So what else? What what more can I say? I'm not going to, you know, this me thinks she doth protest too much. I'm going to protest so much, it's going to seem as if I have a guilty conscience, I don't have a guilty conscience never occurred to me, period, full stop. So I'm not not telling you to read, I'm not forcing you to read a book. Certainly, I couldn't if I wanted to. Um, But I'm saying that um, before you pass judgment, As Chairman Mao said, and we'll end in the death. Chairman Mao, no investigation, no right to speak. Don't speak about my opinions and don't speak about the book until you've read the book. And if you've not read the book, you should do the same thing as I do when it comes to science, to just say, I don't know. I speak to people who are competent, but personally, I don't know. And that anybody with any measure of... Integrity would say the same thing.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Norman Finkelstein, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope people check out the book. It's available now from Sublation Media. Thank you
1: so much. You're welcome.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed or at least found my conversation with Norman Finkelstein to be food for thought. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com/parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com/parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with to Views, to parallax Michael.
1: <laughs> <laughs> The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you, know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why...